Good morning. My name is Vanita Hill, and our family has been attending Genesis since 2018. Uh, we are going to read the morning scripture uh, now, so if you would turn in your Bibles um, to Micah chapter 6. Uh, and again, they're at the end of the row if you uh, don't have a Bible of your own. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and then ten thousands rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sin. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tend grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statues of Amri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsel, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. That is the word of the Lord. Don't have very many people who grew up Catholic or Lutheran in this church, I think, because there is a right response to that, you know that? The right response is, thanks be to God. That's right. That is the word of the Lord. All right, you, you kind of got a little bit there. Right? We're thankful for God's word. Uh, it's a good thing. that, and, and, and here at Genesis, we really believe in 
most of our preaching just working straight through books of the Bible. We want to go Old Testament, New Testament, different types of, uh, and genres of literature. And we're in the middle of this amazing uh, prophet named Micah and his uh, he is standing as God's covenant attorney speaking to, to the people of Israel. So just read a great passage, a passage that a lot of people, uh, one verse out of it, a lot, you probably knew. Uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? But it's set in a larger moment in the text that we need to understand so we can make sense of that. So uh, it's big weekend this weekend. Uh, a couple big things, that big celebrations and remembrances. First of all, of course, it was Veterans Day weekend, right? And if you're here this morning and you served uh, in our military, served in our armed forces, we are so thankful for you. Thank you for, for sacrificing yourself, for, for making yourself available to, to defend our freedoms. Uh, and we're thankful for, to, to anybody in this church who may have lost loved ones who served in the military. Um, it just, wow, we, we are, are so appreciative of people who, who gave of themselves to serve our country. Amen. Um, it's another state holiday. Does anybody know what it is this weekend? <clears throat> the people who aren't here do. It's opening weekend of deer season. That's what it is. Uh, true story. I, I spent a lot of time in, in more traditionally structured churches and our, our denomination, our, our network that we were part of, they used to send out a calendar every year, right? It would send it to every church in, in, in our state. And every church in our state would get like multiple cap, copies. You were supposed to give it to all the people on staff. And this calendar had all the big dates that were like in the church year. So it included things like Easter and Christmas, which, you know, you know, need to make sure you know those dates. Uh, but it also included like special emphasis the state would have. So we would have like a Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, a, a Sunday to remember our missionaries, and we just all kinds of stuff like that. It included big events that were hosted by the state convention, all this sort of stuff. And everything in the calendar, everything in the calendar was... Uh, you know, these religious observances, things that were part of that denomination's um, network, the, the things that they had planned, except one thing. There was one thing that showed up on the calendar every year. They put it in big, bold print so that every pastor knew what it was, and that was opening weekend of deer season. Because they did not want so, some poor pastor to show up in a small town in, in Missouri and plan a revival the weekend of opening of deer season. Because the truth of the matter is, those people were going to the deer stand. They didn't care what you planned. And, you know, you get a lot of trouble by planning a big event. Nobody shows up, right? And so uh, uh, welcome to opening weekend of deer season. So here's the deal. Uh, if you are this morning in your deer stand and you're streaming online, we pray for success in your hunt and a good day. But if you just skip church, may the Lord divert the deer the other direction. Amen? <laughs> All right, there you go. That's, that's my little, little plug for this weekend. Uh, in, in, in the book of Matthew, there's this interesting conflict, this interesting uh, interaction that happens between Jesus and the religious groups of his day. There, there's a couple of religious groups, but the, the one that's probably the most well-known is a group of people called the Pharisees. Uh, these guys had, had created this, this super hardy theological and religious system, and, and they really were, were super dedicated to they themselves and the rest of the people around them, the rest of the world, keeping especially the law of God, the Old Testament commandments, the rules and regulations, the, the, all, you know, all the stuff that is prescribed. And they, they were uh, like as religious of people that, that you would ever see. Um, I joked a couple of weeks ago about the size of their hats, but they were real, you know, how religious people always end up with a bigger hat, you know. Uh, they, they like, 
you knew when a Pharisee was in town or was in, in, you know, walking down the street because they had long flowing robes. They put little bells at the end that represented some things. They had these long tassels. I mean, there's all this way of them saying, hey, I, I am a really holy religious person. I work really hard at this. I keep God's law. I want you to know it because I want you to know that, A, I am better than you, and B, as I am better than you, you should follow my path if you want your life to work very religious people. And Jesus looks at him at this one point in time, he's having a conversation and he says, listen, you tithe. And I love what Jesus says, you're a coming and, and your, your tea leaves. Like you, you are so diligent to tithe that when you go pick mint for your mint tea, anybody like a good glass of, of like mint tea? Have you ever had that? You grow your, your mint and you have your, 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 your garden that's on your deck, right? It, like, these guys were so dedicated to the religious system that they knew 10% belonged to the Lord. When they went and picked tomatoes, they, they brought one out of every 10 and tied it. When they pulled mint leaves off their mint to make their tea, they took one out of every 10. They made sure they gave it. They, they were really dedicated to giving, right? They were, they were passionate about it. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, in your religion, you keep all these rules, all these systems, but you absolutely forsake the weightier parts of the law of justice, kindness, mercy, and love. He, he kind of alludes to this passage, and he looks at the people of his day that are the most religious people in his moment. And, and, and he leans into the passage today as he looks at them and goes, what has happened in your religion is something other than what I came to bring. This actually is a great passage that helps us wrestle was something that shows up in the Bible over and over and over again, this distinction between religion and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Religion and the gospel. And, and I'm using religion this morning from this perspective. The idea that, that we as people will create systems and structures where we do certain things. We have activities and rhythms and, and, and things that we do uh, that are part of our religious observance, that are part of our sense of duty, our sense of, of what it means to be uh, right and, and good and moral and Christian in the world, and that we, we live those things out in certain ways without it actually deeply affecting our sense of our, like our core identity and the sense of our heart, our, our, who we are. That, that religion can become a very like, massive thing in our lives and we can completely miss the point. We can be a person who spends our lives climbing a ladder and the whole life is climbing this ladder only to find that when we get to the top of the ladder and the story is over, our ladder was actually leaning against the wrong building. And, and there's this like clarion warning all through the Bible of saying, okay, what we're looking for is not... This, this irreligious ditching of God to live for myself. That, that's the sin in Genesis 3. But it's also not this path of religious duty, religious performance, me basing my identity on the things that I do in order to please and honor God and therefore feeling like I'm better than you because of it. That religion is as dangerous as irreligion. I think a lot of times what happens among people who spend time in church is that we can compare ourselves against those no good people out there who do those things. And we miss the fact that Jesus' most intense 
uh, rebukes in the New Testament were to people who would fit very comfortably in most churches and actually end up being pastors, leaders, and other, like they were theologically astute, they knew their Bible, they, like Pharisees, you couldn't become a Pharisee unless you'd memorized the first five books of the Bible. My guess is if we quizzed us in here, a lot of us, if we just said, have you read the first five books of the Bible? We, we, we might not run into that. And these Pharisees, like, they had it figured out, and yet they ended up missing Jesus, crucifying Jesus, missing the point. And, and so Jesus quotes Micah because Micah is kind of running in the same lane. These people, like, their response to the indictment that Micah raises on behalf of the Lord is to say, wait a minute, we do our religious duty. We do the things that God said we were supposed to do. Isn't, isn't that what God wants from us? And the response is kind of, but it's different and more than that. And that's what I want you to hear this morning as we wrestle, we look at this text. So what's going on here in Micah? Micah is uh, this prophet. He's God's guy that God has sent to his people, 7th century uh, BC, so between seven and 800 years before Jesus is born, Micah shows up in Israel. Israel for uh, generations, like they are God's people. God has rescued, redeemed them. He's made them his people. We're going to come back to this in a minute because it's important to understanding the text. And now for generations, God has been faithful to them. He has been gracious. He has kept his promises. They are who they are. And they had nothing to do with their redemption, their, their being given the promised land, the blessings that they have. Everything that they have and everything that they are are a result of God's kindness and grace and his mercy in their lives. They are now a nation who has a place. They are no longer slaves in Egypt. All of this is big to their identity, or at least what was supposed to be their identity. But what has happened is that God has been faithful. The whole story of the Old Testament, God is faithful to his promises. He made a bunch of promises to a guy named Abraham and said, I will keep these promises with your descendants. The whole Old Testament, God is a promise-keeping, good, gracious, benevolent God to his people. But they use that graciousness and kindness to, to really run away from God from the get-go. They, they get entrenched in all kinds of idolatry. They get entrenched in all kinds of, of false worship. Uh, that false worship turns into horrible practices. They fight for power. The most powerful and wealthy among them are now oppressing and marginalizing the poor people. They, they begin to have some things that, that they are literally doing in their business practices that are awful and to keep the, the, the poor person down while the richer get richer. What's happening in Micah is, is actually the oppression of the poor and the eradication, the, the disintegration of the middle class. Because the, the wealthy are just using more and more means to pad their pockets while even those who would have been middle class are, are finding themselves in more and more dire situation. And in the midst of this, God sends Micah to the nation to say, I have a case against you. And there's going to be a consequence because of this. And God is protecting his own fame, but he is also loving them so they don't just keep running headlong away from him. God is a gracious parent, like, like a parent who is watching their kid in the front yard who keeps wanting to run into traffic. And God as a gracious parent is going to discipline them so that he can change the metrics of the way they do life. And so what happens is there's a series of indictments, and there's actually three of them. The first one starts at chapter one. The second one starts at chapter three. The third one starts here. And each indictment begins with this phrase, 
hear, O Israel. Like, there is a call to hear what Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel is saying to them. And then Micah, as the covenant attorney, steps up and speaks against them and shares God's indictment. But then in each cycle of these oracles, these pronouncements of of their guilt and God's coming judgment, there is in that indictment as you flow through it, the promise of a future hope. And that future hope is always a coming person. We, this was last week. If you weren't here last week, go back and listen to it. God's promise of a single person who's going to be born in Bethlehem is, is the hope that this shepherd king that God will send to be the redeemer and the rescuer and the king of his people. And, and there to look for that, but, but their trajectory is headed in the wrong direction. Well, when we come to this third oracle, what happens is Micah, inspired by the, the, the spirit of the Lord, is now writing to these people who are guilty, but they are God's people. And what he does is in the midst of this, he begins to offer a way forward, a different pathway that they could walk. Today we're going to talk about how this do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God is is the way forward. Next week we're going to look at the fact that there is this clarion call to repentance. We're going to talk about all of life as repentance. But, but what's being contrasted here is a people who on one level from, if you want to call it from, in our context, from Monday to Saturday, are living one way, but they think that their religious activity and their duty keeps them where they're cool with God because they do what the Lord said to do. They're offering the sacrifices, they're doing all the religious stuff, they're showing up at church, they're, they're giving their money, they're tithing, they're active in their religion, they're doing religion, but that religion, God is literally looking at them going, this is not the goal of your religion. What should be happening here is not just that you are doing the duty that you've been given, what should be happening here is a transformed life where you look like the God who saved you. That's what ought to be happening, okay? And so that's kind of where it goes, uh, what we're talking about. Uh, and so check it out again. Just look at the verses here, verses 1 and 2. The, the indictment comes down. To hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people. He will contend with Israel. So here's, here's Micah, who is his attorney presenting the case saying this case is being made so that the mountains and the hills every it's going everywhere god is going to defend the glory of his name and he is going to act against his people because you were guilty and then he lays out this beautiful picture of something we're going to come back to he says you got to remember who you are you you are god's people he's rescued and redeemed you their response though in, in verse six is what i want you to start do, noticing here I'm sorry, verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord and and, uh, bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with the burnt offerings, with calves a year old, with the Lord? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, here's what's going on. The indictment is saying you, you are supposed to like, be people with changed lives, but you are like literally sitting against me and, and, and leaving a wake of brokenness around you. And their response is this. What do we do? Just, just tell me what to do. Just tell me, like, what's my list? Give me the things that I'm supposed to do and, and we'll do it. 
Like I read the Bible, we're supposed to make these sacrifices. We'll make sacrifices. We'll show up on Sunday. We'll, we'll give to the church. We'll, we'll be generous. We will, we will do the stuff. Like we'll, we'll, we'll do baptism. We'll do communion. We will do the stuff that the religion prescribes. Just, just tell me what to do. It, it is, it, I'm convinced of this. That most people who come to church, what they are actually seeking is the answer to that question. Like, like they, they come, and what I hope will happen in your life is over a period of time in the gospel, you will see that, that the religious activity that, that you're supposed to have is, is not the goal, it, it is the outcome of your faith. But, but what happens is that people come to their religion. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care if you grew up Catholic, Buddhist, Muslim, Baptist, what we do is we show up and we look at the guy who's on stage, we look at the leaders, the people with the robes and the collars and the, the hats or whatever it is, we come to those people and we're like, I know my life is a wreck. I know that I struggle. I know that I'm broken. Just tell me what I'm supposed to do. Please just give me the list so I can put this list over here and I can start working at being better at the things I'm supposed to do because I know if I can figure out the list, if you will just tell me what I'm supposed to do, what does it take for me to please God? What does it take for me to honor God? What does it take for me to go to heaven? What does it take for me to go oh, be okay? They come and what they're, what they're looking for, what, what people are looking for is somebody who will stand up and say, here's the list. Now go do it. Let's work on it together. Here's the list. John Calvin once said, religion is the default mode. It, it, this, they, like, this aren't exactly quote, but it's the idea. Religion is the default mode of the human heart. That what my heart keeps wanting to do is, is just say, what do I have to do? Give me the list so I know. And I'll go work at it. And what the Bible keeps doing is saying that when I come to God with that question and I seek that answer, I'm going to end up with something different than the gospel. Because the center of that is saying, what do I do to please God? And if I understand the gospel, I know the answer is what? Nothing. Nothing. There isn't anything like showing up with a thousand rams and sacrifice them is not going to actually atone for their sin. But see what happens, what religion does, this approach that says, okay, I just need the list. I need to figure out what it is I need to do. I just need to figure out how to live my life so that, that I please God and honor God. I just need to figure out what it, like, what, what's the list? What do I need to do? When I live my life that way, you end up with kind of two different types of people. But what happens is you begin to build your identity around that religion. All the time, your identity is built on the religion. We, we've known people like this. First of all, you end up with people, the way they build their identity is that they want the list so they can appease God, but never really be affected by it. So you end up with people, this is the problem with this passage, okay? We'll see it in just a minute. This is the problem with this passage. Here's what happens. This, I go, okay, just give me the list. I'm supposed to give this amount. Okay, I can do that. I'm supposed to show up church this many times. I can do that. I'm supposed to pray this sort of prayer. I can do that. I'm supposed to, to, to be kind to this sort of person. I'll do that every once in a while. Like when I'm down at the ball game, I'll throw, throw a few bucks in, in somebody's, some homeless person's, uh, you know, uh, collection plate. That I, like, 
I, I know what the list is. And what happens is then I can, the rest of my life, like Monday through Saturday, I can actually be a worshiper of Baal or the other gods. I can, I can do the things that I really want to do. My religion is not really affecting me. My religion is not really shaping my life. It is a list of things that I do to appease God while I build my identity on my own selfish desires. You, you get what I'm saying? So all of a sudden, religion becomes a crutch that allows me to live the life I want to live, but I am doing my religious duty. And somehow these scales, I think they're balanced because I put my mess over here and I put my religious duty over here, and somehow God's going to look at the good stuff I do. And so if, I, if, I'm really gen- if I'm wealthy and I'm super generous, that generosity turns into a way that God is balancing the scales. I go to church, I say my prayers, I help little old ladies across the street, I, I'm okay but the rest of the time, I can, like, my identity is still being built on myself with, with my religion being a way that I then can manipulate God to get what I want. Right? Or the other danger is that I begin to build my identity on my religious performance. And I begin to do all the stuff that my religion requires and more. And more. And more. And what happens with those people is that all of a sudden that religion, my religious performance becomes the center of my identity. And that allows me to look at you with disdain. Because I'm better than you. You, you. you don't vote the way I vote. You don't, you don't live the way I live. You, you, you don't have the values I, I have. You don't, you don't keep the rules that I, you don't do, you're not part of the right group. You, you don't go to the right church. You, you're like, you're a Methodist for the love of God. How can you be that if you really love Jesus? You're, you're, you're a Catholic, you're a Pentecostal, you're a Baptist. I, like real Christians are Presbyterian, right? I mean, I mean we, we create all these categories that, that are shaped around my, I, my sense of the right group who has the best theology, the best religious identity, the best idea. Now, this is what's happening in the text. And this is what's happening with the Pharisees in the New Testament. God has given their indictment, and they're just going, what do we do? Like, we sacrifice a thousand rams. We will offer up our firstborn to you. And God says, here's what I want. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Now, if I'm not careful, I will take this passage and I will turn it into the list. We'll build denominations on on the denominations that are really good at justice. And you come to us, we're going to teach you how to be just, kind people who are involved in poverty and brokenness and standing against criminal, like standing for criminal justice reform and homelessness and all that kind of stuff. Or we will say love kindness, and we'll talk more about what these mean in a little bit. Or we'll become, uh, walk humbly with your God, and, and we'll become a denomination that is really into the disciplines, and that you read your Bible, you pray, you say your prayers, you, you're really regimented in how you uh, do your spiritual disciplines, and that's the way God loves you, and we can turn Micah 6, 8 into a list if we miss what's going on in the whole text. All right? You, you tracking with me? So look at what happens is they say, what do we need to do? And God says, this is what you do. And then he says, starting verse 9, pay attention to this. The voice of the Lord cries to the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the route of him who appointed it. Here's what he's saying. If you're really God's people, when it's time for God to discipline you, you will take it. Because, 
Look at what he says. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the houses of the wicked, the scant measure that is accursed? He is referencing, here's what he's looking at them. He's saying, okay, you talk about all the gifts you give, but when you were doing business in the public square, so you here you are a business owner, what he says, scant measures there, okay? The idea is that there was a type of basket that held our language, almost a bushel. It's not, it's an ephod, but it's like three-fifths of a bushel. But they had a very specific basket that would hold a bushel of wheat. And, and what they would do is they would take that basket and they would put six inches of something at the bottom of it so that you looked at it, it looked like a basket, and they're going to pour a bushel of wheat, and you're going to pay the guy for a bushel, but instead of being a bushel, it's like 70% of a bushel that you're actually getting. They're, they're cheating people. These people who are in church on Sunday, who are pronouncing, oh, we love the Lord. We will give sacrifices. We will, we will be involved. When it comes to business on Monday, the poor come up and they are dying for food and they are selling it. Boy, I'm more than happy to sell you my wheat, but they're going, we're going to take a, a, the amount of money that a bushel uh, is like what it would cost to buy a bushel of wheat while, while we only give you about 70% of that. We're going to have false uh, measures here. Your rich men are full of violence. Verse 12, or I'm sorry, verse 11. Shall I quit the man with wicked scales, with a bag of deceitful weights? Again, the picture is, uh, as they were measuring out goods and services, they would use scales like the scales of justice. And they would say, okay, I have a, I have a bag that is a pound. Except really it was three quarters of a pound. Like, he is looking at them saying, you are intentionally deceiving people in your business practices. You are intentionally uh, not caring for the poor and the broken. You are intentionally uh, living your life in the public square in such a way that, that you are doing, you are the cause of the injustice. And then you show up at church on Sunday. He goes on to say, verse 13, Therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away, but not preserve. What you preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. Here's what the Lord's saying to them in this moment, okay? Here's what the Lord's saying. Because you are religious people, but that religion is not reshaping the entirety of your identity in your life. And it shows up in the way you treat people in the world. You are going to be like the sailors in the first um, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. You ever see this movie? Love this movie. It's a great movie. But there's this moment where Captain Barbosa, who is the, the pirate captain of the ship, is having a conversation with Elizabeth Swan. They have captured her, and there's this whole moment. But they are actually cursed men, and the whole story is that they're actually ghosts uh, who, when, when, when they're not in the light of the moon, they, they have flesh and blood like everybody else, but when the, the moon exposes the fact that they are cursed, broken, hollow men. And the reason they're cursed is because they stole pirate gold. So what happened is they stole this gold that was cursed gold, and because it's this really cool story, but there's this moment where he gives this description of their existence, and he says, listen, we eat, but it does not satisfy. We drink, but it does not fill. He's like, the things that we have, our holes, like our souls are so hollow that nothing will fulfill the longings and desires of our heart. And there is in this text, this, this moment where God's, is, he's not just saying, you're not, like eventually you're not gonna have your own food. He's saying, you're gonna pick your food, the food that you're depriving for, of other people. When you cook it and eat it at home, it is not really going to fill your soul. 
It's not going to satisfy you. And you are heaping up judgment because of this, because you do not honor who I am when you see your neighbor, when you love the broken, when you interact with the poor and the stranger and all that sort of stuff. There is a big discrepancy between their religious activity and the people they are in the public square and how they interact with people in the world. And he's saying that discrepancy proves that you don't get it. But that is what religion does. So what's the alternative? The alternative is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. See, religion says, I do. The gospel said he did. The, the religion says, I try. I, I, I have my duties. I do my stuff. The gospel looks at you and says, lift your chin and look to Jesus and trust in him. And believe it or not, what God has done for the glory of his name is in this passage, he has embedded the gospel as the way forward. The gospel as the only hope. The gospel as the call to all of us. And, and what he does is he points us to this glorious gospel of Jesus uh, by showing us a couple things about the beauty of the gospel that are for all of us today. We are here, and no matter what we are, like you may be coming going, I'm coming to church, I'm just trying to figure this thing out, tell me what to do. And my answer is going to be, look to Jesus. Look to the glory of the gospel. If you were here today and you grew up in church, you spent your whole life in church, it is possible to trust in Christ, to be baptized, to have the Holy Spirit in you, but then to drift towards a religious performance mindset where your whole life is being built, your identity is being built on how good a Christian you are. And what we need to hear is the the call of the gospel in this text. It is here. It is a comparison between their lives, which is religion that is not reshaping their identity and is sending them out into the world so that what they do in in their sacrifices is not consistent with the way they live their lives. And in here, when God is giving the indictment, he invites them to remember the gospel. At least the gospel as it was understood in the Old Testament, which the whole Testament is pointing us forward to Christ. But I want you to notice this. And he's going to tell them two things that help us understand how we live lives that honor God in the gospel. Two things. So what do I do? Here we go. Here's the two things that we need to do all the time to honor God in the gospel. And the first one is this. We need to remember what has been done for us. We need to constantly be reminding ourselves of what has been done for us. We need to remember the story of the gospel. And in this case, he is pointing them backwards. It's 700 years before Jesus, but he is pointing them backwards to the place in their story where God acted on their behalf to rescue and redeem them. And that is the story of the Exodus. Look at it here in uh, verses 3 Uh, verses three to five. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? God is, God is the speaker here. Answer me. In other words, have I really mistreated you? Have I ever done anything that was bad to you? For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened for Shittim till Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of the Lord, the righteous acts of the Lord, that you may know these things. This is what I did for you. This is how I acted. He's literally looking at them as he gives the indictment. He's saying, listen, I've been nothing but faithful to you. I've been nothing but good to you. Lift your chin and see what's been done for you. And then what he does is in verses uh, four and five, 
he gives a very short synopsis that every Hebrew, Hebrew living in 700s BC would have understood what was being said. He gives a quick synopsis of the whole story of the Exodus through the book of Joshua. And the whole story is, you were slaves in Egypt. I rescued you. You were nobodies. I made you my people. You were, you were broken and without hope, and I brought you to myself and gave you a future. You had nothing. You didn't own anything. You were slaves with no ownership. I gave you a land. Here's what he says. He says, I want you to lift your, your eyes and see several things. First of all, he, he points them to their rescue, to their rescue. He says, I'm the God who brought you from the land of Egypt, from the house of slavery. He he reminds them of how God rescued them. If you understand the Old Testament story, you understand they were slaves. There was nothing they could do to rescue themselves. God raises up this guy named Moses. He sends them, and then God sends 10 plagues as acts of divine judgment against the Egyptians. And in the 10 plagues, what happens is God acts on their behalf. If you were to look at it and say, okay, at the end of the story, they're not slaves anymore, they are free. Let's put it in percentage numbers. What percent was their efforts, what they did, and what percent was what God did? And the correct answer to that question is, what percent was their effort? Zero. What percent was God? 100%. Everything that they became, they became because God acted on their behalf. He rescued them. He sent plagues. He delivered them. He parted the sea. He took them across on dry land. He brought them to the mountain. He saved them. Okay? Now, what does that mean for you and for me? That whole story, so we hit these other points, follow along like the bouncing ball. That whole story is looking back as Micah has also looked forward. He just told us in the last chapter, God is going to retell this story in a greater way when he sends a baby to Bethlehem. You get it? He's, he's already helping us see that as they're looking back at the gospel, God's rescue, what he has done, they're building their identity, their sense of purpose on what God has already accomplished. There is this promise that the ultimate hope is that he's going to do it again for all of us, for the nations in a greater way by the sending of one person, that Christ is our ransom. He died on the cross to be our rescue. He has delivered us from slavery. Second thing he points them to is covenant. He tells them that you are my people, verse, uh, verse uh, three. He says, oh, my people, what have I done? Like, he doesn't say, oh, you foreigners, oh, you. He's like, I made you my own. I brought you into relationship. In fact, if, if, if you check out verse four and, and, and you've read the Bible for a while, you will, something will, would catch it. When I was reading it, immediately I was like, oh, I've heard this before. I know where this is, verse four. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Brought you up from the land of Egypt, redeemed you from the house of slavery. I was like, I know I've heard that. Where did I hear that? And the answer is it is the opening line of the Ten Commandments. The covenant. Where God looks at his people and says, I've already saved you. Now I'm going to give you my rules, not so that you can keep them, so that you can be saved, but as God's rescued and redeemed people, it is covenant language. It is the language of God forming a relationship with his people. Covenant is God's love language. It's the language in the Bible where God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And he is reminding them that as a God of all the nations on the earth, he saved them and he has a relationship with them. They are his people. And he is reminding them that he did that. 
They're, they're standing before God has nothing to do with their performance. It has everything to do with the identity they have as Hebrew people who are his people. He did that. It is God's saving act of bringing them to himself. Third thing he points out here is uh, that, that, that they, uh, God's care. He speaks of Moses, Miriam, uh, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, which means he raised up leaders who would go before them, who would lead them, who would be, they're both spiritual leaders, but they would also t- run point as they wandered through the desert, as God led them to the promised land. They were their leaders. He goes on to in verse four to ha- talk about this, this uh, or verse five, this crazy stor- story where he references Balaam and uh, Verse five, oh, my people, remember Balak, the king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him and what happened from Shittim till Gilgal. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, remember the story of Balaam and Balak. And most of us in here are like, who? But they would have known. This is a fun story. It's a really fun story. Because Balaam was a person that, that God had given a spirit of prophecy and blessing. In other words, he has this history. Believe it or not, in the last 20 or 30 years, there has, there's actually been an archaeological dig in the Middle East that referenced this soothsayer, that, this guy named Balaam, that everywhere he showed up and whoever he blessed was blessed and whoever he cursed was cursed. So he's this guy that God has given the spirit of blessing and cursing, and <clears throat> he is in this land of Moab. Moab is the neighboring country of Israel. And at the time of the story, they are wandering, heading towards the land that God had promised. And they had sent a message to Balak, this king, that says, we don't want a war. We just want to be able to pass through. This is, this is not going to be our home. We're just going to pass through. His response was, I see slaves. I see people that I can beat down and force them into servitude. And so he kind of sets up this whole scenario, but it starts by saying, Balaam, I'm going to send you, and you are going to go curse them. And Balaam says, I can only say what God tells me to say. I can't choose who I bless and curse. That's a God thing. And he says, I'm going to give you a lot of money to go curse them. So you go curse them, you will be like rich, rich, rich. And Balaam's like, all right. And he goes on this path and begins to head towards like, when I get there, I will decide what to say, but he, he's got a big old wad of cash in his back pocket. He's kind of already decided, I'm going to figure out a way to, to do what this guy wants me to do. And so he's on his way, and he's riding this donkey, <clears throat> and next thing you know, the donkey veers off the road. And he gets off his, his donkey, beats the donkey, and then he hops on donkey again, he's riding again, next thing you know, the donkey kneels down, he starts beating the donkey again. Third time, he grabs that donkey and gets it working, and this third time, the donkey leans up against this wall and is starting to crush his leg and Balaam just loses it and starts beating the snot off his donkey and then the donkey goes all Mr. Ed on him or goes all donkey from Shrek on him, right? Starts talking to him like, dude, apparently you're not seeing what I'm seeing. I see that angel with the flaming sword who wants to cut your head off. You must be missing that, bro. Like, that's a transliteration of what the donkey says. And now, now Balaam turns around and goes, Oh, God was going to kill me. Donkey, you saved my life. And now they have a whole Shrek experience for their friends. Uh, donkey and the guy, right? Uh, and so, so what happens is, is, here's this story. Now, and why does he reference it? He's saying, here's this moment where there was an enemy who wanted to enslave you. What did I do? I took care of you. I took care of you. I was, I was there to protect you against this king, against this curse, against all this. I was there. 
He's talking about the care of the Lord, that it is God who just provided and took care of them. And it's, it's just just shorthand version of his provision, his care, his love while they were in the wilderness. It also speaks of his provision. He gave them Israel. So he, he says from Shittim to Gilgal, if you were to take out a Bible map and see it, you would see that uh, Shittim is a, a village that is on the east side of the Jordan River in Moab, this nation that we're talking about. <clears throat> And between Shittim and Gilgal is the Jordan River. The other side of the Jordan is the entrance to the promised land, the land that God promised Abraham in the Old Testament he would give his descendants. And so when he says for Shittim to Gilgal, he is referencing the fact that they went from being outside the land to inside the land. And to get them there, God parted another thing. He parted the Jordan River. They walked across on dry ground. And the beginning of the story of Joshua in the Old Testament, which is the story of God giving them the place of promise. He's saying, you he's now looking at them going, you live in this land, but you didn't do anything. I gave it to you. I have blessed you. I've taken care of you. And he finally talks about the atonement. They start referencing the sacrifices and notice that, that Micah doesn't go, say, stop sacrificing. What he does do is he helps them see the purpose of the sacrifices. He's reminding them that the death of an animal was given for their forgiveness. And it should change them. Now, all of this is Micah looking at them and saying, it is God who has done the work. You are his people. He has redeemed you. He has rescued you. And if we understand how this points us backwards to the, the Exodus... And then points us forward to Jesus. We know that our story, like if you were here this morning and you were a follower of Jesus, the, the center of your identity is not your religious performance. The center of your identity is the fact that God, for his glory and his grace, has provided you a redeemer who has rescued you. He has given you his grace and brought you into a covenant. He has opened your blind eyes. He has made your dead heart alive. He has rescued you and saved you. He has cared for you. He has been present. And what you have today, follower of Jesus, if you were here today and you know Jesus, what you have in the gospel is 100% God's acts of mercy for you and 0% of your, your good works and your worthiness. 100% zero. That, that, that remember the gospel. Remember what God has done for you. Religion just says you do. The gospel says God has done it. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he cried out, it is finished. The work is done. Christ has paid your debt. The gospel says it's all God, and I bask in the glory of it. It is all his goodness and kindness to me, and I did nothing to deserve it. If I look and see that, I cannot become one of those two types of religious people. I will stop building my identity on a religion that says I go to church on Sunday and go about living my life the way I want to. Because I'm a ransomed soul by the grace of God. But it also keeps me from ever building my identity on my religious performance that would allow me to look at you and say, I'm better than you. I really get the gospel. It should wreck me because it took the death of Christ to rescue me. But where Christians end up being snobs and arrogant in culture, it's, it's just a sign they don't get it. That's why we need the gospel every week in here. He just reminds them who they are in the gospel. Over in 
the book of uh, Ephesians, and I'm looking at my time going, I'm not going to read, I don't have enough time today to get through all of the stuff I have in my notes. So I will encourage you in your reading this week to go read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, where Paul uses very similar language but keeps expounding on it, and he looks and says, let me remind you who you are. You were chosen in Christ. You were redeemed and rescued in him. You were given the deposit of the Holy Spirit. He has made his promises to you. You have been given the the community of faith that is the church. You have been filled with the goodness of God. Like there's just this one after one. In fact, what's really interesting, if you read the text in the original language, Greek, I'm not telling you you should do that, but if you did, you would find out that verses three, chapter one, verses three through 14 is the longest run-on sentence in the Bible. It is one sentence where Paul just keeps going, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. And his conclusion is, you did nothing to deserve any of this, but God, who is rich in mercy, has given you everything. Don't ever forget it. And if you're here today and you're like, I I haven't figured this Christianity thing out, I just want to tell you, this is the central message. The central message is not, hey, let me just tell you how to live your life and teach you what to do. We're not here to give you good advice. We're here to give you good news. And the good news is that the gospel has accomplished your redemption, that you can be brought into the family of God and you can have an identity that is in Christ. That's the gospel. And so Jesus, Jesus is preaching his first sermon. He said the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Our response, I don't care who you are today in this room, whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, our response every time we hear the gospel is to repent and believe the gospel. Repent is not just, like, we hear this and go, stop sinning. That's a part of it. Repentance in the Bible is really an acknowledgement that I'm building my identity on something other than Christ. I do it every week. Listen, you and I do it every week. We start building our identities. Religion is the default mode. I start seeing myself through the lens of my performance or the things that I desire. And repentance is that I turn and find my identity in Christ and I believe him. I believe him. Repent and believe the gospel. It is a response. We're going to, like, at the end of this service, every one of us have an opportunity to either go on about our lives and to keep building our identity and the things we want to build it on, or we, today we can repent and believe the gospel. We can look at what Christ has done and go, man, the only identity that's worth having is the identity in Christ. Amen. And so the first thing, like this is what the text does. He first takes them to their identity. He tells them this is who you are. And then the second thing he says is because of that, go be these people. He, he, he t- literally looks at them and says um, what it means is, is to have that, the God who saved you, so shape your life <clears throat> that it changes the way you live in the world. Uh, and so th- then he says, like, we're, like the call is to recognize what God desires to do in and through us then. So to, to, to remember what he has been done for us and then recognize what God desires to do through us. And he doesn't, like this list is not, if you go do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with your God, God will accept you. He's saying, when you understand what's been done for you, this is the people you will become. So watch this. Anywhere Christianity doesn't look like this, there's something wrong, their understanding of the gospel. Something wrong. See, see what religion does is it creates theologically astute people who can own slaves. It, it, it creates people who become very passionate 
about the role of women in the home and women in the church, while at the same time looking the other way when women are mistreated and sexually abused. It, it creates the sort of people that will give a lot of money but not lift their eyes to see people right in front of them that are broken or, or care for people. It, it creates the sort of people who will yell really loudly at the moral character of politicians until that, that politician is on their side of the political aisle. That's what religion does. And the gospel produces people who do justice. We, we've talked about justice in here in this series. We've been in justice matters. It really matters to God. It means that we are getting our hands dirty in, in the, like the four, the four big characters or, or types of people in the Bible are, are the, the, the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. That, that we're going to the broken people of the culture, the people who don't live at our standard, don't live the way we do, and we're intentionally engaging those people going to them, that we are involved, we are doing justice, not just fighting for justice, not believing justice, that there is some place in our lives where our hands are dirty for the cause of the gospel with people who need our help, who need our care, who need our love, who give ourselves. We, like as a church, this matters to us. We're starting our emphasis on the gift of love store, and I'm not giving an announcement, you can go read about that, get involved! Be a part of that. This is us loving people in the city of Eureka who, need, who, who, who just need some love and care and help. It is us being intentional about sending people to crazy places. I'm going to announce this in our members meeting in a few minutes. So if you're not hanging around, you have to start looking at stuff. But we are sending teams to the Philippines this summer. We are sending people to Ecuador this summer. We are going to take a family mission trip to the urban center of Chicago this summer. Go somewhere this summer for the cause of the gospel and take your family and let the gospel wreck you to show you the beauty of what it looks like to do justice. Do it. Vacation for the glory of God this summer. There's your challenge. Do justice. Love kindness. It's kind of one of these places where the translators don't know quite what to do with the word because it actually says love, love. Two Hebrew words for love. It means a love, love. But the first word love is this inner disposition. The second word for love is a Hebrew word chesed. It is the Hebrew word almost every time in the Bible it refers to God's love for us. God's never ending, always pursuing, never giving up covenant love for his people. It's when we say his love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. But listen to what he's saying. What's being said in this text is saying, loved people will love. This, this nonsense that's happening in Christianity in our culture where people who claim the name of Jesus are hateful, divisive, and spiteful on social media has to stop. When we're that, and listen, guilty at times, repenting, figuring this out. When, when we're that tribe and we're hateful to people who disagree with us in the context of even our own brothers and sisters, there's something really jacked up about our understanding of the gospel. It's a gospel problem. Loved people will love. Or Jesus just says, here's the deal, man. Uh, let's just reduce the whole testament, all the laws down to just two simple things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you'll do the rest. You'll be fine. Love, love. And he says, walk humbly with God. Walk, walking humbly with God is understanding that, that I am in a relationship 
It's not a religious system that, that, that the core of Christianity is to know our God, to, to interact with him, to be intimate with him, to, to be close to him. And that just daily, I'm waking up going, Lord, you are my, my father, you are my shepherd, you are my friend, I'm giving myself to you, I'm walking. It does involve me being in the word, it does involve my prayer, it does involve being in community with God's people. It means that I am like walking, it, like the, the Bible uses walking it's just a matter of, hey, man, we go places. We, we live our lives. We go about the rhythm of life. And he's saying, listen, the rhythm of your life is that you are walking humbly, humbly. It's amazing how religious no, religion never produces humility. And here's God saying, if it's real, if it's true, if it's gospel, we'll be humble. And we will walk with God, right? That's what it looks like. That's the way forward. And so here we are this morning. And the gospel says, it's not religion. It's not your performance. If you're building your identity on, on some kind of religious performance, repent and believe the gospel. It means that every day of my life, I, I am finding ways to remember what Christ has done for me. I remind, remind myself that it is all God, it is not me. It is his grace alone, and that I am saved and rescued and, and changed. Everything that I have that is good in my life is his gift, and is because of Jesus. And that that begins to produce in me and in us a different way of living in the world. That, that we fill the book, we get the stupid thing out of the bottom of the bushel basket and what we do is we actually fill it to overflowing, especially when it's a poor person who comes. Instead, I just ditch the scales and I give the immigrant what they need. Instead, I, I, I find my identity in who I am in Christ and not my own desires, or my religious performance. So to repent and believe the gospel. And I wake up tomorrow and I do it again. Then I wake up the next day and I do it again. That's the way forward. Believer in Jesus, it's the way forward today. Here's a chance to respond. The band's gonna come up here, we're gonna sing. And every person in here has a moment of decision. Is today a day that I repent and believe the gospel and start figuring out what it looks like to walk in obedience? Or is today a day that I'm gonna keep building my identity on my religious performance or on something other than that? And for those of us, like if you're in here and you're seeking and you're trying to figure this Christianity out, I just wanna tell you, run to Jesus today. Repent and believe the gospel. We're gonna have people over here um, during our second song. We would love to pray with you if you're here today and you're, you're hurting and you're struggling and you just need prayer, we would love to pray with you. But today is an opportunity to come and wrestle with the beauty of Jesus and to trust in him. To turn from yourself and your own self-salvation experiment, your own sense of identity, and run to Jesus who is your hope, okay? And so let's all wrestle with the, the implications of that as we sing today. I'm going to pray, and we're, and we're going to do that. Lord, we love you. Praise you for your kindness and mercy and goodness in our lives, and just pray that you will help us. Lord, I, I, I read, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, and I know that if I'm building my identity on that, I am an utter failure. But I pray that you are transforming me into the character of Jesus every day, which means I'll look more like that, and that we as your people, the more the gospel sinks into us, the more we will look like this together. Help us love this, this world around us. And Lord, the outcome that you say in here is that people will know that you are the righteous God. They will see that because of the way we live our lives. So help us, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.